morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Monday, June the 27th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. South African authorities are investigating the death of at least 22 young people found inside a popular tavern in the coastal town of East London. And the party of Malawi Vice President Saulos Chilima reacts to corruption allegations made against him by President Razaras Chakwera. We strongly believe that the, this is the politically induced or motivated. And the UN says that 11 million people die each year due to drug use around the world. It's calling on governments to promote drug policies that are anchored in human rights. Even as we work for long-term sustainable solutions, there are people who need urgent access to treatment and care now. A media Owners Association of Zambia withdraws from an effort to create legislation that would regulate and punish journalists. We have those stories and sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, South African authorities are investigating the death of at least 22 young people found inside a popular tavern in the coastal town of East London. Details about the exact cause of the death are still under investigation, but South Africa's state broadcaster SABC reports that the death resulted from a possible stampede inside the club. In a condolence message, President Cerro Ramaphosa said that he's worried about the circumstances under which young people, potentially under the age of 18, were allowed to gather at the tavern. Ramaphosa said in a statement that the law must take its course once investigations are concluded. And still in South Africa, South Africans living in the Eastern Cape are counting down to day zero when the taps in the Nelson Mandela Bay will run dry. Experts say that climate change-induced drought has left reservoirs almost empty, while municipal mismanagement has city authorities scrambling to plug more than 3,000 leaking water pipes. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. 68-year-old grandma of five, Virginia Kima, lives in Kwanabule, a poor township in a region named after South Africa's greatest hero and first black president, Nelson Mandela Bay. But life is hard these days, says Kima. Sometimes we stay about two or three days without water. So when there's no water, we do go to other areas and fetch water. Kima tells VOA when the taps run dry, she walks 25 minutes to a school to fill bottles. The Bay Area is suffering a critical water shortage. Authorities say regional dam water storage is at about 11% of capacity and could be about to get a lot worse. At the current rate of use, two major reservoirs could run out completely in a matter of days. If that happens, 40% of the city of Quibera, with a population of about a million people, would be affected. Levuyo Bongazi is spokesman for the government committee dealing with the shortage. He tells VOA that authorities are racing to prevent day zero when they run out of water. Look, with regards to the exact date of day zero, um, you know, we we really cannot have such a date uh, in the calendar because there are lots of moving parts. Um, we are doing everything we have and everything we can in our power to avoid uh, taps running dry. Bangazi says there are several reasons for the low water levels, both natural and man-made. We haven't had good rains for more than seven years 
and we've had a, an increase, a sharp increase in water consumption from across sectors, be it residential, business, or other. So that compounding, compounding that with obviously ailing infrastructure that leads to, uh, you know, severe water leaks, uh, almost 25 to 30 percent of our water being lost due to water leaks caused by, you know, failing infrastructure. More than 3,000 leaks have been reported to city authorities who say teams are scrambling to fix them. Benghazi says the community also needs to cut back on water consumption, which he says is 60 million litres more per day than it should be for the size of the population. The water shortage in Nelson Mandela Bay comes just a few years after the major South African tourist city of Cape Town narrowly averted its own day zero. Bay Area residents are hoping they can do the same. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. At least 11 million people die each year due to drug use across the world. And as the world marked International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit Trafficking Sunday, the United Nations human rights experts say that governments should end war on drugs and promote drug policies that are firmly anchored in human rights. Moreno Jambo has more. According to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, over 350,000 people in Africa die each year from alcohol and illicit drug overdoses and also from illicit drug use disorders. In Africa, adolescent substance use is becoming a major public health concern with a prevalence of 42%. Gadawali is the chief executive director of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. He says that illicit drug use is straining healthcare systems and many people need emergency assistance. And non-medical use of tramadol continues to endanger people in Africa and the Middle East. Even as we work for long-term sustainable solutions, there are people who need urgent access to treatment and care now. The war on drugs is said to have resulted in a mass detention through racial profiling, excessive pretrial detention, unequal sentencing and criminalization of people who use illicit drugs, including in some countries pregnant women. While he says many people are facing stigma, especially those in refugee camps and in humanitarian settings. She says they are among people at risk of being left unattended when it comes to treatment of those using drugs. Women are among the foremost victims of conflict and crisis, and they often face greater barriers to treatment for drug use disorders. In some parts of the world, the proportion of women among treated patients is below 10%. We need to ensure access to care for all, including in emergencies. We also need to ensure that controlled medicines are available for pain relief around the world and in humanitarian settings. This year, the theme of the International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit Trafficking is addressing drug challenges in health and humanitarian crisis. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says illicit drug users need science-based treatment and not punishment in Kenya. There was a high increase of drug use over the last two years. Victor Okioma is the chief executive officer of Kenya's National Authority for the Campaign Against Alcohol and Drug Abuse. He says there is easy availability of drugs such as alcohol that are mostly abused by the young people.
We are looking at, for example, the counterfeit contraband and, uh, you know, the what you are likely to call uncertified alcohol. And it, we have plenty of it in the market mm-hmm. coming from Ethiopia, Tanzania, in the neighborhood. Others manufacturing it within our space here in Kenya. Imports of alcohol that has not paid taxes and is not in the market. The UN says conflicts, climate disaster, forced displacement and grinding poverty create fertile ground for drug abuse. The UN also warns that criminals profiting from people's misery will be dealt with. The latest UN drug report says about 60 million Africans aged 15 to 64 use drugs. By 2030, that number is expected to grow to 88 million, an increase of 40%. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California. Daybreak Africa continues. In Liberia, communities that have hosted refugees for years are requesting reparations from the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Residents say they have lost money while providing support for nearly two decades. As Rita Yogbedue reports from Monrovia, the communities say they want the UN to construct roads, public latrines, schools and other infrastructure in the area. Nimba County is located in the north-central portion of Liberia and is the second most populous of Liberia's 15 political subdivisions. Bordering the county are the Afro-Coast and the Republic of Guinea. Nimba, among other counties, has been hosting Ivorian refugees from 2002 until now. According to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, Nimba has supported 64% of Ivorian nationals seeking refuge in Liberia. The UN Refugee Agency started what it calls its voluntary repatriation of Ivorian refugees last July. And records show that over 31,000 people have been repatriated to their home country. Of that number, more than 19,000 were sent home from over 26 communities in Nimba County. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees says the status of the Ivorians will end on June 30th. On June 18, the UNHCR's High Commissioner Filippo Grandi arrived in Liberia to oversee the repatriation of one of the final batches of refugees. Our program was organized by UNHCR and the Liberia Refugees Repatriation Resettlement Commission, which also attended the ceremony. Grandi says he is grateful to the local communities and the Liberian government for hosting Ivorian refugees to the time of their return home. I am very proud that, first of all, I can thank the people here. You have received the refugees, you have taken care of them, and now you're sending them back in peace. But for the locals, his thanks alone is not enough. They say they are disappointed in the UNHCR for leaving their communities without any substantial improvements. According to the residents, they lost money while hosting refugee families. 70-year-old Annie Kwele is the head of a group of local women in the area. She says 
They have spent all they had while providing food and shelter for refugees for over two decades. Say nothing that the African people will work on them. Because they play their family land. The railroad, the cassava, the hole, everything will give it to them. We don't benefit nothing from uh, UNCR. Like Annie, James Bali is a member of the community's elder council. We expected the UN to at least build toilets for us, build water pumps. The pumps that we had, they are all damaged. It is our surprise today to just leave the community like that. There's nothing for us to point at. Arita Divine is the deputy director for administration at the Liberia Refugees Repatriation Resettlement Commission. She also joins the call of residents and is pleading with the UN agency to reward host communities. Please consider the host community who has open hand to these people. They expect some livelihood. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, has not responded to the request by the locals. Rita Jabweduo for VOA News in Morovia, Liberia. A spokesperson for Malawi Vice President Saulos Chilima's United Transformation Movement says the party is shocked by corruption allegations made against the vice president by President Razaras Chakwera. The president revealed last week that 53 current and former government officials had received kickbacks from Zuneth Sata, a British national whose company was awarded 16 contracts by the Malawi government worth $150 million. President Chakwera stripped the vice president of some of his constitutional duties. UTM's publicity secretary Frank Menifumbo says that Vice President Chilima, whose party is a member of the nine-party alliance in Chakwera's government, has been doing a good job bringing about reforms in Malawi. Menifumbo tells VOS James Barty that the UTM believes that the allegations against the vice president are based on an incomplete report by the Anti-Corruption Bureau and therefore politically motivated. We strongly believe that uh, this is uh, politically induced or motivated. You know that uh, this government that is in power now was uh, ushered at the platform of uh, an alliance agreement in which nine parties came together, went into an electoral alliance, won the government, and formed government. So there are some agreements that the uh, contained in the deed, and we feel that uh, this is one way of uh, stifling that agreement from becoming effective. That can only be our suspicion because we don't find any merit in what happened to the vice president. So we are suspicious that uh, the whole thing is uh, politically motivated. How true is it that... um supporters of your party had gone to the home of the vice president in an alleged apparent attempt to stop the anti-corruption bureau from uh, interrogating the vice president. That story is completely untrue. By the way, the officers of the anti-corruption bureau themselves have not even been to the house of the vice president despite the fact that they mentioned that they would want to come and interview him. As to why members of the party went to the residence of the vice president, in Malawi it is customary, it is traditional, that in time of distress like this, we go to comfort our friends, give them moral support. So it's normal. It has happened with the former president of Malawi, Peter Mtarika, 
when the anti-corruption bureau went to his residence to go in and interview him, people gave, went to give him moral support. So there's nothing strange or unusual about people going to the residence of the vice president to give him moral support. Did the vice president attend cabinet meeting in defiance of the president's order? The vice president went to, to attend the cabinet meeting based on the principle that one is presumed innocent only if proven guilty by a competent court of law. The vice president has not been judged of any wrongdoing. He's an innocent man. He went on to proceed to attend the cabinet on the understanding that he was the director elected by the people of Malawi. The Malawi experiment, meaning the coalition between the UTM and the UDF, was hailed by, I see many people, as being a good model for opposition parties around Africa as they try to contest elections with this infighting. What do you think people should make of this? We as UTM, despite all what we're going through, we still believe that uh, something good can emanate from this alliance. This is why Dr. Salos Klaus Chirima has ignored all what is happening around him in terms of these accusations because he strongly believes that uh, he is obliged to save the people of Malawi from the biblical poverty that is uh, discouraging this country. Honorable Fumbo, it's very nice to talk with you and thank you so much. You're most welcome, James. Frank Mwenifumbo is the publicity secretary for Malawi's vice president, Saulos Chilima's United Transformation Movement Party, who was speaking from Lilongwe with VOA's James Barty. The Media Owners Association of Zambia has withdrawn from a process that seeks to regulate journalists through an act of parliament. The group accuses the media body of backing changes to the document that would harm journalists. From Lusaka, Zambia, Elias Limwanya has more. For the past five years, an effort to draft legislation to regulate journalists has been led by the Zambia Media Council, an independent media body that includes the Media Institute of Southern Africa and BBC Media Action. Zamek worked with the media houses to draft the statutory framework in response to complaints, mostly by the government, that the press is not professional. Zamek's suggestions are part of a 15-page document recently submitted for fine-tuning to the Ministry of Information and Media, working with the Ministry of Justice. It later emerged that some passages were secretly included in the document. They include clauses that provide heavy fines and long prison terms for journalists proven to have published false information. This accusation prompted a boycott by the Media Institute of Southern Africa and BBC Media Action, which were part of the council spearheading the drafting process. A week later, there was a sharp reaction from the Media Owners Association of Zambia with electronic media houses opposing statutory regulations. Evans Banda is chairperson of the group. We have noticed a number of clauses that are detrimental to the development of media space in Zambia. And if left unchecked, we may find ourselves creating a monster that will create problems for the media in Zambia. Therefore, we are not surprised that the Media Institute of Southern Africa, MISA, Zambia, and BBC Media Action have taken this path of leaving the technical working group. We therefore wonder which media organizations are represented by the MLC 
and from which body they draw the mandate to present the media in Zambia. Costa Mwansa is another member of the association and the chief executive officer for a private TV station. He said the draft bill does not guarantee a conducive environment for investigative journalism amid statutory laws already contained in the country's constitution and the penal code. There is another law that comes that authorities, even without a search warrant, can come into our premises, search our phones, search our laptops as a dwelling place. How then do we practice investigative journalism in the absence of the access to information bill and the freedom of information bill, if that is not enough regulation? On the other hand, Ernest Chanda, a member of the Media Liaison Committee, insists that statutory regulation will help promote professionalism among journalists. Journalism is journalism. There shouldn't be citizen journalism. A journalist is supposed to be professionally trained. The same people you are calling as citizen journalists are those that will find an accident. They start taking pictures of dead bodies. Then they start throwing that on social media. No, there are no ethics there. Second, professional journalists have got well-known platforms. And you will be ready to be accountable. You will not hide. Such that if you defame someone, they will know where to trace you. Stakeholders have walked out of the process amid accusations that the draft is aimed at censoring the media. And it remains unclear if the bill will be submitted to the National Assembly for enactment. In 2021, the Zambian government enacted the Cyber Security and Cyber Crimes Act, which allows investigative agencies to search any citizen suspected of harboring information related to computer communication to prevent bodily harm, loss of life, or damage to property. For VOA Africa, I'm Elias Limonia in Lusaka, Zambia. And now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. With that, we go to Abuja, Nigeria with Samson Omale. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sports with some boxing news. South Africa's Heki Butler beat Mexican Elwin Paul Gasoto over 12 rounds in a WBC light flightweight title eliminator on Saturday night at the Gimnasio del Polideportovio in Mexicali, Mexico. The scores were 114 to 113 on all three judges' scorecards. The 34-year-old Butler surprised critics with some predicting an inside-the-distance win for the Mexican. Before the fight, Butler was listed at number one and so at number three by the WBC and he now qualifies to challenge Japan's Kenshiro Teraji for the WBC light flightweight belt. In tennis news, the third Grand Slam of the year gets underway later today at the All England Club. One of Africa's biggest female tennis player at the moment, Tunisian Ons Jabour, currently ranked number three in the world, will play Miriam Bijokland, who is ranked 123 in the first round of the tournament at the Old England Club. Jabour comes into Wimbledon as one of the informed players and favorites for the title, having won her second title of the season in Berlin. Previously, Jabour best result was reaching the quarterfinals of Wimbledon in 2021 but now she appears determined to win her first Grand Slam title in England. Wimbledon has always like a special place in my heart. Um, uh, before it was 
the French Open since he was always close to Tunisia. I grew up playing on, on clay a lot. Uh, but, you know, grass, I usually play football, <laughs> not tennis. But it's, I mean, it's amazing. And what I experienced last year, the emotions on center court and everything that happened, I think just um, it became a dream, you know, and I, I wish I can, I can have that dream one day. In football news, two goals by striker Abakar Abdullahi helped the Golden Eagles of Nigeria to defeat the Baby Stallions of Burkina Faso 2-1 to win the Wafu B Under-17 Championship at the Cape Coast Stadium in Ghana on the weekend. And now to North Africa, where Egyptian top club side Ismaili have withdrawn from the 2021-2022 Egypt Cup Round of 16, saying the draw of the tournament that was held on Saturday was no fair. The dervishes have been drawn to face Egyptian Premier League title holders Zamalek, who were pulled on the group's lead without draw, alongside Al-Hakli, who also led the other group without joining the draw. The club in a statement said the draw was held for the benefit of specified teams after the competition's committee and Egyptian Premier League board decided to separate Al-Hakli and Zamalek on the top of the two groups without joining the draw. And that's it for Daybreak African Sports. I am Samson. Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are also on YouTube where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, Red Carpet, and many others.